Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Tonight on The Readout. Let me say this to my MAGA Republican friends in Congress. Don't tell me you support law enforcement if you won't condemn what happened on the 6th. Don't tell me. Can't do it. For God's sake, whose side are you on? The head-spinning Republican ideological switcheroo as President Biden, the Democrat, slams the MAGA threat to the rule of law, while Trump's Republican pals threaten riots in the streets. Plus, at any moment, we're expecting the DOJ's response to Trump's request for a special master for those classified documents he stole and stashed at Mar-a-Lago. Also tonight, there was a time when Republicans campaigned with messages like, Morning in America. Now, they think Americans are lazy bums. Not sure they'd even want to govern such a country of supposed slackers. Senator Elizabeth Warren joins me. But we begin tonight with President Biden in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, near his hometown of Scranton, sending a sharp rebuke to the MAGA agenda and calling out the Republicans and the right as the real threats to the rule of law. Now it's sickening to see the new attacks on the FBI threatening life of law enforcement agents and their families for simply carrying out the law and doing their job. There's no place in this country, no place, for endangering the lives of law enforcement. No place. None, never, period. I'm opposed to defunding the police. I'm also opposed to defunding the FBI. Meanwhile, we're seeing once again that Donald Trump is nothing but consistent, maniacally posting on his and Devin Nunes' pretend Twitter thing a string of messages promoting QAnon conspiracy theories as he faces numerous investigations. One might call these posts uh, posts from a man who's very much afraid and gathering whatever friends that he can, however weird and dangerous they might be. We have Trump going on a QAnon social media rant days after a senior Republican senator warns of street violence if Trump is charged with a crime. Well, President Biden certainly had words on that. The idea you turn on the television and see senior senators and congressmen saying, if such and such happens, there'll be blood in the street. Where the hell are we? Remember, this is all happening against the backdrop of MAGA world losing its collective mind over Biden using the F word, fascist, to describe their philosophy. Okay, semi-fascist, but still. Well, there, there actually is a history of fascism in America. In fact, a pro-Nazi movement in the 1930s and early 1940s was a very visible political movement and certainly a frightening one. Look at this. This is a photo of a Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Its attendees were raising Nazi salutes toward a portrait of George Washington. And that's six months before Adolf Hitler invaded Poland. 
It was perhaps the most organized attempt to bringing Nazism to the forefront of American life. And this appeal extended far beyond the fringe, as noted by the Washington Post, saying it reached prominent citizens such as Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh was known to many as the famous long-distance aviator and the victim of a famous baby kidnapping. But you know what else they did? He praised Adolf Hitler as undoubtedly a great man. So when President Biden references fascism, he isn't doing it lightly. Yes, what we're dealing with today is a long way from the pro-Nazi movement of the 1930s, but there are disturbing echoes. The open racism, the calls for violence, vilification of immigrants, book banning, and rejection of democratic norms, which is why Biden is ramping up his travel ahead of the midterm elections, including a rare primetime speech scheduled for this Thursday in Philadelphia, a city acutely linked to this nation's pursuit and promise of freedom. And also where President Obama delivered his famous, his, his famous and historic race speech in 2008 before eventually picking a running mate named Joe Biden. We are at a crossroads in this country. There is no doubt about it. And in two days, outside Independence National Historic Park, an American president will address what the White House calls the battle for the soul of the nation. Then it's up to the voters to decide this fall which side we're on and how much we're willing to fight for it. Joining me now is David, Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island, a 2021 impeachment manager and the author of House on Fire, Fighting for Democracy in the Age of Political Arson. And Asha Rangappa, former FBI special agent and a lecturer at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. Uh, thank you both for being here. And um, Congressman Cicilline, I've seen some of your interviews, and I know your book actually goes right at this theme. You know, President Biden, um, he's sort of channeling like he's kind of a mix between the President Biden that was a senator and like Car and Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, right? The sort of we're not for defunding the police, we're for the rule of law. But the bigger picture of what he's trying to say is that you have an entire political party whose kind of thematic is we don't get what we want. We're going in the streets and we're going to burn everything to the ground. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Uh, look, this is a very perilous time. House on Fire uh, is a book about the moment we're in. Uh, I looked at my experience both as a mayor, as a member of Congress, as someone who battled Trumpism for four years and then served as an impeachment manager. So I recount things that worked, things that didn't work. But the real purpose of the book is to sound the alarm about the dangers we face in terms of protecting our democracy and that everyone needs to understand what's at stake in this election. This is not a normal Republican Party anymore. This is a Republican Party of chaos and corruption and QAnon and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the big lie and a party that is willing to excuse the former president no matter what he does. They concoct excuses for his misconduct. And this is very dangerous. If you look at the checklist for fascism, the kind of authoritarian leader, the use of violence, the kind of obsession with a plot, the demonizing of others, all these things are trademarks of the kind of uh, authoritarian leader or fascist leader that we don't want in this country. And we really need to understand what's at stake and how in important it is for everyone to really understand that in this election, we have a fundamental choice. Are we going to protect American democracy? Or are we going to give power to this group of people who are engaged in very anti-democratic behaviors? You know, Senator Lindsey Graham did try to sort of clean up on all five, uh, Asher Rangappa, on his comments about there's going to be riots in the streets. Let's listen to him doing that. If there's a prosecution against President Trump based on mishandling classified information after what happened with Hillary Clinton, there will be frustration and I fear violence. I reject violence. I'm not calling for violence. I 
violence is not the answer. Okay, you, you can say what he wants, but during the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings, um, Asha, Lindsey Graham essentially played the QAnon game, which was to try to tar anyone who isn't a MAGA Republican as a pedophile or supporter of pedophiles. That is straight out of the QAnon playbook. He has played ball with all of the intonations, you know, toward the white replacement theory. He has played the game and now he's trying to back away from it. But I don't think anybody can hear what he said before as anything other than a threat. Walking that back to me doesn't change it much. For you, as a, as a person that was in the business of trying to stop uh, these kinds of threats, what do you hear when you hear politicians sort of playing it on both sides? Yes, Joy, that's actually a rhetorical strategy called paralipsis. It's saying something while claiming not to be saying it. I'm not saying that there's going to be riots in the streets and blood everywhere, but there's going to be riots in the streets and blood everywhere. And so it's a way of having plausible deniability while also putting that call out there. Um, and so, you know, this is part of a larger playbook. I would say the QAnon playbook is really a part of what Congressman Cicilline was just describing. It's a part of the authoritarian playbook. And that the line of questioning you mentioned uh, during the Supreme Court justices confirmation hearing is about demonizing us versus them, uh, creating this idea of some great past that we're, we need to get back to because, you know, all of these outsiders are, you know, sending us down, downhill. I mean, the, the congressman laid out a lot of the different tactics that are used. And I think Senator Graham is basically just on board and he's using one of them. You know, and, and Congressman, there's a there's a poll. This is an economist YouGov poll from August 20 to 23rd. Right. I mean, there were, I, you know, when I was growing up, the, the, the Republicans were the morning in America, Reagan, sunny optimism, you know, even though they were selling a lot of like anti-poverty, anti-poor people, you know, throw all the welfare, anybody who's on social, you know, on welfare under the bus kind of politics. But on top of it, layered on top of it was this sort of optimistic message. If we can put that poll back up now. Among Americans, uh, strong Republicans, 54 percent of them believe civil war is likely among all adults, 43 percent believe civil war is likely. Even Democrats and independents, a plurality is saying, yeah, we're likely to have a civil war. I hear people talking about it all the time. There is real, real talk that is, you know, not fanciful about whether the United States can continue as a republic, whether we have to break up into a couple of countries, because people don't feel that it's possible to live with these two parties in one country. And, and you have the Republicans who also, if you look at the polling, the majority of them believe that white men and that white Christians are literally under siege in America. Ron Brownstein was t tweeting about that the other day. So when you have that kind of a situation and a Republican Party playing to that, I don't see how you govern a country like that. Well, I think, you know, what we have to do and I think what Democrats are doing, and they have to do two things. We have to continue to deliver to the American people. And I think we have done that both in, in making sure that we took care of small businesses and struggling families and reduce the cost of prescription drugs and childcare. All the things that folks are concerned about, Democrats are delivering. So we have to continue to do that, make sure people know what we've done. Every step of the way, Republicans have been against that. And at the same time, we have to be sure to characterize the Republicans for what they are and what they're doing and call it out very directly. Every time we stand up to a lie that they use to try to poison American politics, we're defending democracy. And I think we just have to do 
both of those things and and will prevail in November. Make sure the American people understand what we've done to respond to, to the pandemic, to respond to the economic uh, calamity that followed and how we're rebuilding America's economy. Make sure they understand Republicans have blocked us at every turn. And most importantly, make sure they understand what a threat to democracy this ultra-MAGA Republican movement is. It is an anti-democratic, anti-freedom movement. It's premised on a big lie. It will excuse the criminal misconduct of the president by making kind of crazy excuses. So I think we have to do that and we have to characterize them and call them out for what they are and understand this is the fight of our lifetime. This is about whether or not we're going to live in a democracy or whether or not we're going to give power to people who have lost the right to be in control of our economy, of our health care, of our democracy. You know, and, and Asha, if, if Joe Biden, who's the most middle of the road, pro-police, working class, you sort of, you know, inoffensive, purposefully inoffensive uh, politician in our uh, of his generation is painted as an extremist who isn't even a legitimate president of the United States by the right. He's not even the, the, the black guy that was president before him. Um, and Donald Trump, who stole national security secrets and hid them in his house, in his bedroom, is considered almost a Jesus-like figure for people in the MAGA world. How much danger are we in, really? And how much danger is this upcoming election? And how much should we be nervous? Well, I completely agree with the congressman. Trump has a cult of personality that's, you know, if you look at, for example, the the history of um, the North Korean leaders, this is how it starts, this sort of creating this mythological origin story, and we're seeing some of that happen. Um, and the lessons that you have from authoritarians around the globe is that it's easier to prevent them from coming into office than it is to get them out once they're there. We, we learned that lesson, frankly, on January 6th. We're yeah. very lucky because we did get him out. Um, so we kind of get a do-over. But, you know, we need to take that lesson very seriously. The other lesson is that it's easiest to defeat these movements when you create a coalition, which means that at some level you set aside some policy differences so that you can all be on the same side of fighting for democracy. And for this reason, I'm glad that um, both the congressman and President Biden are calling these MAGA Republicans, because it may be that there are Republicans like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger who are willing to stand up to, you know, the manifestation of this movement. Um, it's best to join forces with them now uh, to defeat it and then, you know, go back to fighting with everybody later. Um, but you have to address the urgent threat first. I, 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 listen, I know a lot of them. I'm friends with uh, some of these Republicans. And I've said to them, Rick Wilson and I have said this to each other, we can go back to fighting later about policy. We don't agree on anything. But for now, we on the same side, even with Liz Cheney. Yes, we are. Just for now, we have to make sure this manga stuff is put to the side. Congressman David Cicilline, author of House on Fire. Good luck with the book. Asha Rangappa, thank you very much. I appreciate you both. We're waiting on the DOJ's response to Donald Trump's request for a special master to oversee the classified documents he stole and kept at his house. It could come at any moment. Latest is next. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Any moment now, the Justice Department will submit a response to Donald Trump's bid for a special master to oversee the FBI's review of the documents seized in the Mar-a-Lago search. The rebuttal is expected to be up to 40 pages long after the agency said the 20-page limit wasn't sufficient to, quote, adequately address the legal and factual issues raised by Trump through the judge in the case. Trump appointee Eileen Cannon has already signaled her intent to grant her benefactor, I mean, sorry, the former president's wish. Trump's feeble attempt to appoint a third-party overseer shouldn't come as a surprise. In fact, it's straight out of the legal playbook Trump's used for years in nearly every investigation, way back since his presidency. And that is to delay, delay, and then delay. The New York Times writes appointing a special master could block the government from continued access to the files until the special master has gone through them and would potentially pave the way for lengthy litigation that could bog down the investigation, meaning... Even if his claims are eventually rejected, he could use the slow pace of the legal process to do what he does best, and that is run out the clock. Joining me now, Charles Coleman, civil rights attorney and MSNBC legal analyst. And Charles, I mean, this does feel like it's very the usual stonewalling. Trump did this with January 6th. You know, they claimed executive privilege, and then that took forever to litigate on his tax returns. He kept saying, well, I'm under audit, I'm under audit, I'm under audit. And he kept rejecting, you know, trying to sort of say, we're going to do it next month, do it again, do it again. The grand jury uh, from the Russia probe in 2020, the Supreme Court denied Congress access to his secret grand jury testimony from Robert Mueller's investigation after an appeals court ruled that um, they could see the evidence. He just keeps litigating and litigating and litigating. And it's been a strategy that's worked for him. Is it going to work again? Well, Joy, that remains to be seen. I think if you take a step back and you look at the landscape of what we're seeing here from a 30,000-foot view, there are several different spaces where it does appear that the Trump legal team is going to try the delay tactic. I foresee and predict that when it comes to the selection of a special master, first of all, it's very unusual that the judge would have in advance of hearing the arguments from both sides, already so strongly indicated that they are leaning toward granting a special master, even though they haven't heard the arguments from either side, pro or against, or from both sides, pro or against. And as you so aptly call them the benefactor, uh, that is something that is unusual in a case like this. But the selection of the, of the special master is going to be the first place where Team Trump tries to provoke some level of delay because they're going to fight about their qualifications. They're going to fight about who it is that's selected, even if it's somebody who they like or who they want. They're going to do that because that's going to cause a delay. And then as you go further down the road, like you said, and like that New York Times article indicated, there are going to be numerous documents that they try to litigate over and over and over again. The question becomes, what happens with the DOJ in the interim period? And what I mean by that is Team Trump is trying to figure out what Donald Trump's next move is outside of the court of law. And so that is ultimately going to dictate how this case proceeds and how far it goes with respect to not only the continuing investigations, but the decision up to web- as to whether they indict. Donald Trump for the many different ways that he's broken the law. So that's really going to be the linchpin in terms of deciding where this case goes one way or the other. 
In your uh, career, you know, litigating, uh, you know, for regular people who are not Donald Trump, have you ever heard of any defendant being able to, you know, for instance, litigate over a special master saying they need to be able to review the documents that were seized after they've already done it? They've already reviewed the documents right. that were seized. They've already right. did it. So that's a moot point. But he still gets to litigate it and getting to go back and back and back. Could any other American, any other person in your career, your illustrious career as a prosecutor, ever use this much stalling and delay to keep one step ahead of the law? Well, Joy, many have tried and very few have been successful. I can say that most people who are in the space that have the resources, and that's a very important point that I'm going to point out about privilege and access to the justice system. When you have the monetary resources to paper litigation to death, it is not unusual to sort of see this type of thing play out. But you said something that's really important. You talked about the fact that the DOJ and the FBI have already indicated that they've gone through the documents. Essentially, Merrick Garland and the DOJ, they are playing chess. Donald Trump and his legal team, they're playing Uno. And that's just all the, that's the only way I can explain it, because at this point, they've taken away every reason that they would need to have a special master. And so by saying, look, we've gone through these documents, we've identified attorney-client privilege stuff, we've identified things that need to be returned to the National Archives, and then we've identified material that's so sensitive and so private and so top secret in nature that it has to be returned to the actual government and cannot be in public purview. They have made the issue of a special master actually moot. But to your question, no, this would normally not be successful, quite frankly, because most Normal folks don't have the resources that are going to allow them this type of delay because it just gets so costly. And secondly, most judges in the interest of judicial economy and moving their own docket and calendar are not going to put up with this. But in this case, as you pointed out, we're dealing with a Trump appointee. So anything goes. You know what else most people don't do? Take classified documents home and put them in their bedroom. Most people don't do that because if you do that, you end up in prison. Anyway, <laughs> Charles Coleman, always love talking with you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you. Okay, woo. Coming up, still ahead, Senator Elizabeth Warren will join me live. But first, from love it or leave it to America sucks, the weird, potentially dangerous de-evolution of the conservative idea of America itself. And that is next. There was a time when, in American politics, the way that you ran for president, the clearest way to win, was to express optimism about America, whether you were a Democrat or a Republican. Remember Ronald Reagan, the happy warrior Hollywood actor selling the American dream? He perfected that model of politics with Morning in America. In fact, the Republican Party branded itself as the America, love it or leave it party, to beat up on Democrats, who they labeled as the blame America first crowd. Until another celebrity icon, Donald J. Trump, came along and told us something very different and politically unusual, that America is terrible, that we just don't win anymore, that we basically suck. And now a whole new generation of Republicans have made that their entire strategy, literally denigrating the American people, supposedly to win elections. In a tweet, Arizona's Republican Senate candidate Blake Masters sarcastically blamed diversity at the Federal Reserve for the economy, which I might add is at full employment. And when he got the totally predictable smoke, he dug in on that position in a video. I don't care if every single employee at the Fed is a black lesbian. 
as long as they're hired for their competence and not because of what they look like or who they sleep with. News for Joe Biden, we are done with this affirmative action regime. Now, if you want to see the affirmative action regime on display, just look at Biden's White House. Only in a Trumpified America is electing the first woman vice president who previously served as the first woman district attorney in San Francisco and the whole entire attorney general of California, positions to which, again, she was elected, just as she was elected vice president of the United States. Only is, you know, troubled world is that a nefarious affirmative action hire. And, and let's not forget, this is coming from the party that thought it wisdom to put forth Sarah. I can see Russia from my house there. And so Sarah Palin for the same job. I mean, they legitimately thought that that lady should be one click from the nuclear codes. And yet Republicans have used President Biden's plans to cancel $10,000 in student loans and 20000 for those who'd also receive Pell Grants to demonstrate their bona fides with red blooded Americans. He's the one who is robbing hardworking Americans to pay for Karen's daughter's degree in lesbian dance theory. I mean, I mean paying off loans for people that don't want it. They want to have some bizarre uh, basket weaving, uh, you know, a degree. And they want all of us people watching across this country, hardworking men and women to subsidize their laziness. What is lesbian dance theory? It sounds fabulous. Kimberly Guilfoyle should have an understanding of who takes out student loans. I mean, she did go to law school once upon a time, which brings me to another complaint raised by the Republican Senate nominee in Oklahoma. Mark Wayne Mullen decried farmers and ranchers, small business owners and teachers paying the debts of Ivy League lawyers and doctors. Congressman Mullen, I should note, had $1.4 million in PPP loans forgiven. And make no mistake, there are farmers and small business owners and teachers who take out loans to go to college, too. And not all those lawyers work at big firms or in private practice or get $1.4 million in PPP loans. Now, to be clear, the median debt for bachelor's degrees in agriculture, nursing, business administration and education are all upwards of $20,000. As for postgraduate degrees, the veterinarian treating those farm animals, they owe on average about $157,000. U.S. law school debt is $160,000 and more than $215,000 for medical school. And unless you think we don't need any more doctors or you ignore how many congresspeople and senators are also lawyers, you might want to get more young people to get a higher education and encourage that. And those Pell Grants, they're only for undergraduate education and are income-based, meaning if you are low-income or working class, you're the one who Republicans hate for taking out that loan to go to college. God forbid you should try to go to law school and become a public defender or run a rural health clinic. Guess what? Too bad. Drown in your debt. While the politicians who hate you get their six-figure and seven-figure PPP loans forgiven, despite earning $174,000 a year in tax-paid salary. After the break, we will actually hear some sense on student loan forgiveness when Senator Elizabeth Warren joins me. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Let me tell you just one of the things we can do with the two-cent wealth tax. We can cancel student loan debt for 43 million Americans. And because African Americans have to borrow more money to go to college, uh, borrow more money while they're in college and have a harder time paying it back when they get out, that one law is going to help close the black-white wealth gap for people with student loans by about 20 points. Senator Elizabeth Warren made forgiving student loans a central component of her platform during her campaign for president. And while the candidate who declared, I have a plan for almost everything, didn't become the nominee, her ideas have played a big, huge role in the momentum that made student loan relief a reality. While President Biden's plan doesn't cancel all of the debt, it does help millions and millions of Americans. Up to one third of the 45 million people holding federal student loans could see their debts forgiven. Despite Republican efforts to cast it as elitist, a Wharton study found that at least 75 percent of that debt relief will go to households making less than eighty two thousand four hundred dollars a year. Because, hello, people, rich people's kids don't get student loans. They don't need them. So Biden's idea directly helps the working class. Republicans know that and they know it's politically popular, which is why they're flinging themselves around like drunken chickens trying to spin the idea as bad and unpopular, including this laughably out of touch moment from Senator, I sun myself in Cancun while the poor is in my state freeze. Ted Cruz. If you are that that slacker barista who 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 wasted seven years in college studying completely useless things, now has loans and can't get a job. Joe Biden just gave you 20 grand. If you can, you know, get off the bong for a minute and, and, and head down to the voting station uh, or just send in your mail in uh, ballot that the Democrats have helpfully sent you. Um, it could drive up turnout, hmm. uh, particularly among young people. Joining me now is Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. And Senator, I, I note that Ted Cruz went to Harvard. I went to Harvard, oh, and too. Princeton I, before that. And maybe. Princeton before that. And the only way I was able to go to Harvard is because I was smart. So I was able to get scholarships, academic scholarships. Had I not, the loans that I took out that took me about 15 years to pay back would have been 100% of the education that I got. So when he talks about people going to Harvard, there were a lot of working class kids like me who didn't have any money and who were only able to go to school because of loans. So when he talks about elite people, he's the elite person. How can they be trying to make this argument that working class kids who get student loans don't deserve a break? You know, if Ted Cruz would step outside his carefully insulated bubble, he might end up talking to some of the people who end up with student loan debt, really. And as you say, some are kids of modest backgrounds who end up going off to, to college. Although, Joy, i got to put a little plug in here. You know, Harvard, 2% of the students have to borrow money. Um, state schools, it's more than 
50% of the kids have to borrow money to make it through. And historically, black colleges and universities, it's more than 80%. In other words, the more, the bigger, the more diverse yep. student body that you serve, the more of them are having to borrow money to make it through. That's right. But here's the thing. That's just for the college portion of these kids. About 40% of all the folks who are dealing with student loan debt do not have a four-year college diploma. These are people who are barbers and nail technicians, mm -hmm. people who are truck drivers, people who do sheet metal, uh, people who have had to go to school. Understand this. You know, generation back, the employer helped train them and yep. got them through. But now these are folks who have to go to a certificate program, car mechanics, and they pay for it themselves. And sometimes it all works out great and they can afford to pay for it, but a lot of times it doesn't. And so we've got people who are earning at a high school graduate's level and paying off student loan debt and it is crushing them. You know, and that's the part that really gets me here. Yeah. And the thing it's that, about um, saying that these people are somehow lazy. These are people yeah. working two or three jobs. That's these right. are people who are busting their tails trying to keep food on the table, yep. make the rent, and still pay an average of 400 bucks a month to Uncle Sam on their student loan debt. So I've just had it with this yeah. idea that, that these are somehow the slackers in America. No. These are the hardworking, middle-class, working-class folks who are trying to build a future for themselves, and they're caught in a system that just crushes their bones. And anybody who would get outside their tight little cushy bubble would actually learn that. And the thing is, is that, you know, they love to go after baristas, but a lot of oh, people yeah. who are working behind that coffee counter are paying their rent and taking care of their children with that money. And they sure do like to go in there and get their little latte from that person and expect that person to be there to serve them. But that person deserves actually to have a financial future, too. I just have to show you this. This is the thing that really burns me, Senator. These people like Marjorie Green and Vern Buchanan and Mark Wayne Mullen and Kevin Hearn and Mike Kelly and Matt Gates, they took advantage of PPP and got hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans to their businesses repaid. They were able to take advantage of that. They don't see a problem with themselves getting our tax money to pay back their loans. But they have a problem with somebody getting $10,000 or $20,000 in loans paid back. Why can't we yep. have some kind of an end to, why should they be eligible for those yep. loans? They work for the government. But that is really the whole point here. These are people who are well-to-do. They meet with their well-to-do friends. They meet with well-to-do lobbyists. And that's all they see in this game. They said that's all they're out there to do. Let's help the well-to-do. And that seems like a very reasonable thing to do for them. You know, and they forget that more than 90% of the folks who take advantage of this or are going to be able to cancel student loan debts actually have a family income of less than $75,000. Let's watch these guys try to get along on less than $75,000. Let's see them pay their friends and buy their fancy suits and do all the things they want to do and then complain 
because those folks are having trouble with $400 a month student loan payments. You know, the whole thing really is not just outrageous. It's a reminder of who the Republicans are fighting for. Think of it this way. Just let's back this machine up and look at what's happened over the past few years. The Republicans were in control four years. Donald Trump's in charge, right? And what is the one big accomplishment? They got, well, let's do two. Two big accomplishments they got. A tax break that went to the billionaires and the giant corporations and a bunch of extremist judges who are That's out right. of touch with the rest of us and going to tell us how to live our lives. The Democrats get in control. And what do we try to do? Well, we get out there and say, we're going to reduce carbon emissions by 40%. And here's the deal. We're going to pay for it by actually making those giant corporations that are paying almost nothing pay at least a minimum 15% corporate tax. We're going to cut what people have to spend on insulin monthly. Now, the Republicans fought us and rolled back the part that would have helped everybody, but at least we got it through for folks on Medicare. We're going to let Medicare negotiate the cost of prescription drugs. We're going to put a $2,000 cap on what people spend. These are things that matter to people. That whole climate initiative, cut emissions and produce millions of jobs all across this country. Yeah, that's what Democrats do. And now, even with the skinniest possible majority, that's what Democrats have delivered. Yep. And letting people who are not rich get a break, catch a break every once in a while. Sorry, that is the least that we can do for folks. And by the way, when Ted Cruz goes to get his next coffee, the baristas should turn their back and walk away and say, sorry, you know, I'm going to go be a slacker now because apparently you don't think that I should be here doing this job. Senator Elizabeth Warren, I appreciate you. Thank you for being here. Um, Cheers. Okay, coming up. A Louisiana woman. Get this. This is wild. A Louisiana woman is being forced to carry a fetus with a fatal condition as a result of her state's draconian abortion ban. That woman, Nancy Davis, and her attorney, Ben Crump, join me next. The end of Roe v. Wade has unleashed horrifying trauma and chaos on millions of women across this country. Let me introduce you to Nancy Davis, a loving mother of two teenagers and a toddler. A few months ago, she was ecstatic to learn that she was pregnant again. Ten weeks into her wanted pregnancy, doctors at Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge discovered that her fetus had a rare and fatal condition in which the baby's skull would not grow. The doctors delivered the shattering news. If she brought her pregnancy to term, the baby would be stillborn or survive maybe several minutes or up to a week. The physicians advised Davis to terminate the pregnancy, but said they could not perform the abortion procedure. You see, Louisiana is one of 13 states that have some of the most restrictive bans on abortion. The current laws on the books in Louisiana are a confusing patchwork of restrictions that penalize doctors who perform abortions with up to 15 years in prison. The Louisiana Department of Health clarified that there are exceptions for a pregnancy that is medically futile. The list of conditions includes several congenital disorders and chromosomal abnormalities. The list also includes a catch-all exception for other, quote, profound and irredeemable abnormalities incompatible with life. But you need the the permission of not one but two doctors. Nancy's heartbreaking situation does not appear on the state's list of acceptable conditions for an abortion exception. And Louisiana's law is so punitive and vague that medically trained professionals bound by the Hippocratic Oath and are literally too scared to do their jobs. Let me just repeat that. 
In these forced birth red states, doctors must roll the dice and decide if they are willing to risk going to prison to help their patients. Does that sound sustainable to you? Nancy Davis, who says that she was left to carry her baby only to bury it, is left to grapple with the reality that her child will not survive and nobody in Louisiana will help her. Ms. Davis must now travel hundreds of miles away to find someone who will. Nancy Davis joins me now, along with her attorney, Ben Crump. Ms. Davis, thank you for being here, and I'm sorry that you have to be here. I want to ask first, how are you doing? When are you planning to travel? And are you, have you secured a place that you can go for treatment? Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for having me as well. Um, I'm doing okay. I'm taking it day by day. Um, I plan on having the procedure done this week. And how difficult was it to find somewhere to go? Because, I mean, Louisiana is deep in the South, and a lot of those neighboring states have similar laws. It was difficult. It was, um, I had to do some research and background on these different places and reviews or whatnot. But it was difficult finding somewhere else to go. To go. How did you feel when you were told your, your, your infant will not survive, but we can't do this procedure for you here in Louisiana? I felt horrible. Um, it was very traumatizing hearing that coming from the hospital that I'm accustomed to. Um, and what was the other question? I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just, you answered the question perfectly. And, you know, and I, and I do want to bring in in Ben here because, you know, Ms. Davis should not have had to deal with this, Ben. Um, how is it possible that Louisiana, members of the Louisiana House and Senate and the governor signed a law where they didn't even clarify that somebody in Ms. Davis's position actually could get an abortion if medically needed? Exactly, Joy Reid. And that's why we're calling on the governor and the uh, legislator leadership of Louisiana to have a special session to clear up these vague and ambiguous laws that don't leave doctors with the direction whether they will lose their medical license or whether they will be in prison for 15 years. And they leave it so terrible that it is inhumane that Nancy Davis would have to carry this baby just to bury this baby. And Ms. Davis, just to be clear, if you were to have to go through with this pregnancy to term, wouldn't that risk your life as well? Possibly. Yes, ma'am. Well, any pregnancy that you carry to term is a risk. Absolutely. Whether the baby is completely normal or not. And you wanted to be pregnant. This was a wanted pregnancy. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course. Yes, ma'am. I was elated to be pregnant. You know, it, it's, it's something that we planned and we accomplished, you know, and to hear that news was very, very devastating. And is, are you going to be able to continue medical care with the doctors, that, as you said, to whom you are accustomed after your treatment? Are those doctors comfortable treating you afterward? Well, I don't think I'm comfortable with them treating me afterwards. So I would say no. Yeah. 
And, and Ben, that's the situation, right? We're se- essentially separating, uh, you know, women from their health care, the health care they're accustomed to, and some, in some cases from their state, their home. It's unbelievable that this is happening. Yeah. And in Nancy Davis's case, she has to travel over 20 hours uh, by car up to the Northeast to get the procedure because so many of the uh, southern states that have done these draconian uh, abortion bans after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade have left not only Nancy Davis, but many other women with a terrible predicament that they must face, even though the law should be clear and protect them. This law in Louisiana does not. And it's not just Louisiana, Jory. It's many other states across America. Uh, I want to say uh, to Ms. Davis, I am so sorry that you had to come on TV and talk about your personal health situation. Uh, we here at the show just wish you all of the best. We're praying for you. Um, and thank you for coming on. And thank you, my friend. Thank you ben. so much. I greatly appreciate it. God bless. Uh, this that is a reason to vote, Joy. Thank you. Absolutely it is. Uh, amen. That's tonight's readout. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.